This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold, so go get a copy. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor of Wisdom Tree, and our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. We have a really interesting show talking about bonds and where things have come this year. We've got a great guest, another local Philadelphian, to be coming on the show with us to talk about what's happening in the bond market. But before we turn to him, Professor, uh, the uh, we've got some Fed people out there some of yeah. our, our friends, Mr. Bullard and Loretta, have said 50 is what they wanted. Right. Uh, the, the bonds have gone. Uh, yields have moved a lot. People are reacting to inflation. Get What's your take on what's been happening? Yeah. I mean, I listen, I am I admit this week, and I'm concluding last Friday in the morning with that the labor market report, has certainly been challenging to my thesis that the Fed should stop <laughs> tightening. In fact, admit that it may have already over tightening. Um, however, um, I think that it would be premature to declare victory for the Hawks here. One has to remember that before the next FOMC meeting, um, which is more than a month away, we're going to get another employment report and we're going to get another series of price reports. Um, uh, they will part, and, uh, February report will certainly not be as hot as January. I mean, if, but if it is hot, um, I think 50 is on the table. Um, but I think it's going to cool off a lot. And I don't know if anyone really knows with seasonal adjustments being jiggered around and population being jiggered around exactly what it could be. It could actually show a loss. If it, if it is a loss, it'll grab headlines and I think will put a kebab on any 50 basis points. If we have CPI. I mean, energy prices, uh, you know, oil is off a lot today, are going to be the same or lower instead of the big, the hike we saw in January compared to December. So there are some disinflationary forces going on 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 that side, which might make the CPI uh, look better. Um, talking about the CPI, um, um, as I mentioned on CNBC, if we put current housing data, either from Zillow and from Case Shiller, into the housing portion of the CPI, um, we got the uh, still a, a negative reading for the month of January. It was a fourth consecutive negative inflation reading for core CPI, um, if you put current uh, data in. Of course, we'll, we'll get uh, the case shower and the Zillow a little bit later uh, for what, what is happening in December and January. Um, but that is really putting downward pressure on the true index, although the reported number at up seven-tenths of a percent, those high reported numbers are going to continue to filter in. Now, we know that finally, finally, the Fed has pivoted from talking about core alone without now saying ex-rental because they know the housing, ex-housing, because they know how distorted the housing data is. Um, and so they're left with a smaller and smaller little base to base their inflationary pressures on. Nonetheless, the producer price index, and there's a lot of debate about whether that precedes or does not really precede the consumer price index, and it's been reformulated in recent years, uh, was a hot number. Uh, jobless claims continue to be hot numbers. There is still a tremendous amount of tightness in, in the labor market, and that certainly has surprised me, despite the fact that the manufacturing indices have been tepid as best. Uh, housing starts were below expectation. And although that we had a, a kind of a jump in the uh, home builders sentiment index, which is, I think, a, a pretty good indicator um, 
that was based on mortgage rates two weeks ago, which have jumped almost 50 basis points uh, in the last week. I'm wondering what that's going to do to the housing market uh, in in the month of uh, the remainder of February and uh, into March, because that, we, we you know this is this is really going to I think cool off sentiment here. So I think it. I mean I I think that it's it's too early to say that you know oh 50 is in the bag i still think the preponderance of the fed wants 25 and if we get a cooler number and an okay number on the cpi uh it will be 25 you know my biggest worry is that monetary policy works with a lag um uh remember we started tightening less than one year ago and the March meeting. So we've only got 11 months. We've all already made a lot of progress on, on the on the pricing front. We have not made progress on real output front, although GDP growth was less than 1% last year. Um, uh, uh, the labor market has remained uh, very tight. So uh, yeah, this was a challenge. And um, if the data remains as hot as it is, um, we'll probably be going for 50 uh, in March, and I'll cross my fingers that the cumulative effect uh, of the, all this tightening, which is to be felt by the middle and end of this year, uh, is not too much. Uh, but odds are, I still think, as a 25 basis point. And as far as going beyond that, the Fed does not know what it's going to do more than 10 days to two weeks in the future. They may have their dot plot, but if you look at the record, they make a decision about a week beforehand. The, the 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 chairman makes a decision, communicates it to everyone else. And uh, as I've been saying, there has been no dissent in over 12 months uh, to any policy move by the Fed. At least now you got a few people making some different statements. Uh, I mean, if, if maybe they're going the wrong direction, but they're, they're you're not officially dissenting, but you're hearing some verbal dissent. So. Yeah, and they're not voters, as you know. Yeah. And by the way, let's be very careful. Uh, Loretta Messer says, I'm open to being open to doesn't doesn't necessarily mean this is what I'm going for. She's not a voter. Bullard is not a voter. Uh, if you take a look at the voters here, none of them have come out explicitly and they won't because there's still a lot of data to go. Let me also say something else, which I think is really uh, uh, important. Um, and, and especially that was true earlier in the week before the producer price index came out. And that is that if if the if the labor market is going to be really strong this year, there's not going to be a recession. Well, if there's not going to be a recession, the 225 or 220 estimate of earnings for the S and P 500 is not necessarily going to be uh, way too high the way so many people were talking over the last four to eight uh, uh, weeks. Um, and I think that's what was supporting equity people as the bond market yields were moving up, people were saying, well, why is, the, why is the stock market moving up? I said, because they think that, you know, the earnings are going to materialize. So to remember, stock prices are the quotient of the numerator and the denominator. And if you can say there's going to be a really strong economy that does make the, new, the denominator go up with higher rates, but also makes the numerator go up with higher earnings. Um, so that was certainly a reason why the market was responding well early in the week. Now, when we got a bad PPI, that doesn't say much about the real, and that just has implications for the Fed. That's why the market went down on the PPI, but did not really go down on the few days that were following the labor market report. I'm going to bring in our guest for just one moment. Todd, any comments? We're going to bring your, get your opinion on this. But before I, we let the professor go, any things that you'd like to hear from Professor Siegel? We're talking with Todd Thompson, who's portfolio manager at Reams Asset Management. Uh, he does a lot of work on bonds. But before we let the professor go, anything you want to get from the professor? Uh, well, the one thing it's obviously front and center the market's gripping with is they it went from being almost a near certainty of pricing in a uh, some type of a recession or demand destruction or what have you. And that narrative shifted, which created the main story for this year, which is the gap between the Fed and Wall Street. So it it priced in that scenario. And then it shifted with the stronger numbers to a what this, they called a no landing. And now, it's, as as Professor said, if it's this strong, you're not going to have any, you don't even talk about a landing, it's going to be through. But 
so is the is the real issue? I'm assuming we, uh, the 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 drawdown in M2 uh, that will and what we've seen in the in the monetary aggregates, you're seeing that to be the main one of the main gauges for uh, the, the slowdown we expect to see. Exactly, Todd. Exactly. I'm still concerned. Uh, as you know, 2022 had the biggest uh, 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 downturn in M2 money supply growth in over 80 years since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Um, uh, it wasn't a lot compared to the big increase, but uh, it, 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 it certainly was extreme. Uh, early data, I follow the weekly data on deposits in banks. That looks like it's continuing to go down. So on the fourth Tuesday of the month when that M2 comes out, I think it's going to show another drop. Uh, I'm also doing some analysis, and my preliminary analysis hasn't absolutely finished it, shows that if you use real data on the housing um, that had much more inflation early on, so the price level is really much higher than the official statistics, which are in catch-up mode, um, we have used up almost all of that extra money that was produced um, by the Fed between March 2020 and March 2022. Um, in other words, if you, you know, the, the actual inflation, which is about 10 points higher cumulatively over the last two years than almost three years since of the regular inflation has almost used that up. We still have about four or five percentage points to go that could be spread over a whole period of a year or more. And so it's less than one tenth uh, per month. So we're, we're almost there at using it up. Now that does assume that the velocity of money is constant. Um, and, and velocity obviously can change in one direction or another, but it is using trends that had been in place for decades before the pandemic hit and the money explosion began. Well, I noticed the um, uh, John Greenwood and Steve Hankey had that op-ed in the journal that hit exactly. exactly that topic, and they've been banging that drum for quite some time. But it's interesting. We've talked about this internally. That school of thought is framing the narrative between the monetarists and these Taylor rule advocates of the Fed right now who are now it, it could very well be they're they're holding too close to the Taylor rule um, uh, to their to their to their peril. Yeah. Now, the big question about the Taylor rule, and there's more discussion on this. I think J.P. Morgan came out with an interesting thing. What are you using as your real rate in the Taylor rule? Um, uh, and, and that becomes the you know, I mean, in the when Taylor wrote it, he thought that the short term real rate was 2%. Well, the Fed now thinks it's 0.5. I actually think it might be a little bit lower, although now we're getting articles that say it may have moved up now that we're seeing with real rates being high as they are, no yet uh, slowing in the labor market as one would expect. So there is an interesting question. Has that real rate maybe begun to move up? The Fed thinks it's plus 0.5 in there. And uh, by the way, I'm not knowing what they're putting in because don't forget, last year we had less than 1% GDP growth. If you use the GDP gap version of the Taylor rule, you get a very different thing than if you use an unemployment, which was extremely strong. So, you know what? I mean, that we you know we had a record because of the productivity collapse. We had a record deviation between what was happening. It used to be didn't matter whether you use an unemployment gap or you use a GDP gap because they'd move together. But it really does matter now uh, with the Fed projecting uh, a half a percent this year, which might be blown out of the water since estimates of the first quarter are over 2%. So what are they predicting? Negative in the last, in the last three? We have to look at that. But um, uh, there, there could be, there's been a big difference between that. So this use of the Taylor rule, first of all, what real rate are they using? Secondly, are they using the GDP gap, which I believe was the original article that Taylor wrote, or are they using um, a, a kind of an unemployment gap, um, which goes back to more of that uh, natural rate of unemployment hypothesis. Well, Professor, we're going to say goodbye. Uh, we'll let you get to uh, your obligations here, but have a Thank you. great holiday weekend. Um, yes, and we'll you see, you, uh, see you again next week. See you next week. Bye. We're going to continue the conversation here with Todd Thompson of Reams Asset Management, who is a Philadelphia-based uh, fixed income firm, um, acquired a wholly owned subsidiary of Raymond James Investment Management. Todd, thank you for joining us here on Behind the Markets. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Give our listeners a little bit about your background uh, and a little bit about Reams' background. 
Reams, uh, as you alluded to, we're a wholly owned subsidiary of Raymond James Investment Management. Uh, one, one minor correction, we're based in Indianapolis. Um, uh, apologize about that, but it's, uh, we're based in Indy. And um, we're in primarily institutional fixed income. We, our firm started about 41 years ago. We were the used to be the in-house pension plan for, for Cummins Engine, and uh, they wanted to stick to the diesel engines and allow, allow us to separate to be an independent money manager. So we've grown that book of business to be now um, $22 billion in assets under management, serving as primarily institutions. And tell us about yourself. How did you, how did you define yourself there? I am a managing director and portfolio manager. I started out with corporate credit research. That's kind of what I've done for 28 years in the business, and um, I still do that. It's hard to get away from it once you start, but I oversee all, all, all parts of the investment process that are related to, to credit, credit research, trading, and portfolio management, and how we use them in portfolios. Uh, so tell us a little bit, um, as you see, you know, I heard some of the professors take on the economy. You mentioned all the debates you guys are ha- your team is having. Tell us a little bit about your read of the economy, the inflation situation, all that, all that you're hearing from the Fed. What's, what's your, your house view? Uh, great question. We're, it's a lot to, to process, but I, what we have found, um, as investors, the easiest thing to do is, don't overthink it and try to forecast because um, you can have a house view, but you should hold it lightly because things could change. It's easier to try to read the market and read where the herd, so to speak, is trying to process and grab onto a theme. And if you just look back the last year and a half, how this has transpired, you had uh, going into last year, there was inflation was a mild threat, if anything. And so people, it was a, a quiescent response in the market. And then, when the numbers kept deteriorating and the Fed took more def- uh, aggressive action, which defined 2022, was, it was the aggression of the Fed um, seemingly behind the eight ball, playing to play catch up. The market, as we all know, through most of last year was um, pricing in more and more and more and looking into the abyss and not knowing how much it would take to create this uh, elusive demand destruction to get inflation down. And they knew all too well the, the perils of the 1970s. They did not want to go back to that. And so there was a lot of this dynamic going on. And um, reading the market, if you you kind of knew, well, this is a unprecedented change uh, in financial conditions. It is likely to have a delirious effect on inflation and growth. You know that's going to happen. To what does this take time? Um, and you add to that the strong dollar. You add to that. Uh, higher energy prices and a war, all the ingredients of the puzzle are in place for an appropriate demand destruction. It was the question was, was time. But reading the market, the market was overly aggressive and overshot and as markets do. And it's easier as a manager of financial assets is try to always read where the market is and make an assessment. Is this likely unreasonable assumption that's going into what the market is, or is it reasonable, or is it an overshoot the other way? And going most of, I would characterize the 22, um, was an overshoot to the, to the aggression side. And it almost seemed like each week it was a, almost a one-upmanship by strategists on Wall Street to outdo each other to the, where the peak terminal rate was. And the Fed governors did the same thing in the regard to them trying to talk down the market. And so, um, uh, so last year was a lot about um, that herd was an overshoot and September brought a disconnect and it was the market traded very poorly. Risk assets, as we know, did very poorly all last year as they are discounting using this higher rates. And, the, you know, as we know, the stock market is, be- is becoming more sensitive to that with so much more technology weight now. It is now becoming dangerously uh, sensitive to interest rates more so than it ever has been in a long time, in my opinion. So the market was fine. Uh, it was trading down and through October and then the disconnect happened and the market wanted to call the Fed's bluff around October. You saw the dollar, the first one was the turn in September was the dollar came off its highs and then it was credit high yield um, and stocks and the like all in October through the end of the year. Despite the jawboning of the Fed, um, the market said, you are going to definitively land this and, 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 and um, win this inflation battle. And uh, it will be uh, said it will be a, a, a great landscape uh, with lower rates, pricing in 
actual, not just a, 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 um, uh, you know, stop, stopping the hiking campaign. It was actually pricing in uh, easings aggressively into the latter part of 2023. And if you look at one market we like to watch is the tips market, and which is you can glean from that um, inflation expectations. It was basically saying at all tenors, you are going to have inflation cruise down to 2% uh, in two years, definitively. And so whereas watching the market, you saw that pendulum swing over to one extreme side uh, up until October of last year uh, being uh, um, uh, over, overly aggressive, you now saw it swing the other way being too uh, quiescent or too optimistic from October through uh, the end of the year and into January. So yeah, reading, the was- market, reading the markets of, is an important part of what we do. I'll say Professor Siegel takes some blame for uh, <laughs> for telling the markets how much the Fed has to cut. No, not blame. He, I mean, he's been calling it that he thinks the Fed, that inflation is coming way down. And he, he's been out there thinking the Fed will pivot quickly. Um, but the data is coming in, not as he said. It's, it's been tough for for his thesis uh, so far. What Tell us a little bit, as you, as you see that evolving throughout the rest of the year, I mean, as your read... Do you have a call on as, as you think through? Um, I know you you manage things from core plus to long duration, short duration. You have some unconstrained strategies. How, how do you form a view on where you people should be on the duration bucket? Given where how much you can earn with you know the shortest duration securities, um, are you uh, how do, how do you think about that big question of of duration today? A uh, great question. You know, it's um, like to focus on. For the duration part of it, it's focused on uh, real rates of interest. Um, uh, that's, in our view of looking at markets for decades and decades, uh, it's the best arbiter for an anchoring point if there is one. It, it, that metric was distorted for a long time post great financial crisis because of it was just dis- distorted because of alternative monetary policy. But I think it's now with that shackling undone, you now have you can find real rates of interest. And if you look at the tips market, the real the real rate on Treasury inflation protected securities is now one and a half percent. It's reasonable. And we haven't seen that a positive number at one and a half percent in a long time. So from using that metric, I would say the, the bond market, you want to be at least neutral. And um, the market was easy. It was it was actually mildly attractive um, uh, middle of last year before you before you had this uh, this this rally, uh, as I mentioned, in um, that started in October. But it was uh, with with the the levels we had in the middle of last year it was even an easier decision back then. But leaning against that herd and scooching out duration versus benchmarks is is not a bad thing. I mean, another way I look at it is um, look how far this correction has brought the market to a healthier state. The yield on the Bloomberg aggregate, the, that's the flagship broad uh, uh, broad market ma- uh, benchmark, was as low as one percent in 2020. And then the year of rates and fiscal policy, monetary policy, et cetera, it's now four and a half percent. So that the problem with the market was back then in 2020 and 21. And the, what we saw last year was just the rite of passage to go from a unhealthy state to arguably a very healthy state. Now you have a yield that's investors need in their portfolios, four and a half percent on the broad market. And you have real rates of interest that are finally um, at reasonable levels. Now, I want to drill into two of the things you mentioned there. So the real rate of interest was, we were saying was crazy when you, people were paying, you know, like 1%, you had a negative 1% real yield, which is, you know, we we're giving the government $100 to getting $9 back after inflation 10 years later, is like insane type of pricing for real rates. But now you're getting paid. Do you have a sense, you know, that one and a half percent is interesting as a number because uh, it's basically the average since 97 when they first issued these TIPS bonds. Um, you know, when they first issued, they were at three to four percent in the 99-2000 period. You got very high. That's when you had this sort of negative equity premium because earnings yields on stocks were lower than the TIPS yields. You know, there's still using cushion today for earnings yields over TIPS today. Um, but do you have a sense? Do you have a, as you think about the bond opportunities looking far ahead, where the, you know, the longer term tips yields might go, the one and a half percent, should it go below one? Should it go higher? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is a neutral, neutral type right there? 
Yeah, I, a great question. Um, I would say, um, and I've, I've held this view for a while, is when you, if you focus on, and other people may take a different take on this, but uh, just the demographics, there's demographics and there's just the debt load globally of, of, of uh, how much central banks and sovereigns have taken on debt. Uh, the United States is, you know, 160, 170% debt to GDP of just, just the government debt. Other countries are, uh, are in perilous tra- trajectories as well. And I think when you think of a world that has too much excessive debt, it, it begets the question, can you even handle higher rates? Because the, the higher rates you have, it's, it's a, it's a tax on the economy. So I, I, my hunch is, is that, um, forget the argument of demographics and aging population, just the, the, the excessive accumulation of debt should, uh, suggest, um, uh, lower real rates of interest vis-a-vis decades past when there was significantly less debt. That's, that's how I look at that. I think that makes a lot of, a lot of good points on. We, we talk about that in Siegel's book, Stocks for Long Run, that, that real growth is a function of demographics and productivity and that, lo- that there should be lower real rates with that demographics and, and population. So we agree fully with what you're saying there. Um, in terms of the, I, I want to come back to your point on the aggregate getting to be about four and a half percent. Um, I think that was the number you gave and, and floating rates. You know, if you go to treasuries, you know, where the Fed is, the, you're getting closer to five at the very, very short end. You know, this inverted yield curve A is a, you've had some record inversion going back to 1980. Um, you know, should the Fed be more concerned about that? Is it, is that, it, what, what does the inverted curve mean to you as you all think about allocating portfolios? Great question. Um, that you drew an arrow on the part of the market that people should be concerned about or optimistic about, I guess, but it should be, it should get people's attention. Number one, um, the front end is where the whipping boy was for all of last year. And, um, that's where the blunt of the repricing was. It was over, it was, it, it ran up too much. It was a zero. So it had to be the one to reprice closest to calibrate with the Fed's expectations. And, um, that, that's, um, it, when you have an inverted yield curve, the, why that happens because the longer tenors want to price in the other side of the valley where rates will ultimately come down. Well, that's the part that's struggling right now. Um, and that is if the market doesn't, doesn't know how to price the, the, the out years of when the other side of this valley was because now it's been, uh, as we've seen in the last two weeks, the market's been, um, felt like, wait a second, this, this the non-farm payroll number last month was pretty strong. Retail sales have been pretty strong. We may not have a recession. Maybe we have this all wrong. Maybe there is going to not necessarily be a, a quick uh, pivot. And, and there, there is the consternation we're seeing in stocks today and bonds is that uh, gripping with that. But in regard to the term structure, um, the front end is very reasonable. And that's where our attention has been more intermediate maturities uh, you look at two years after five years, it's fairly attractive. It's harder to make a case out in longer bonds. It just is. Um, it's um, one of the, the biggest buyers of long debt for quite some time has been the U.S. government, the U.S. Treasury uh, with their bond buying programs. But that's a thinner market, has lo- lower sponsorship. So when you've taken the bigger buyer base out, it's hard to connect the dots and make uh, a relative value assessment on longer tenors. Parking um, capital in shorter tenors and, uh, in the front end of the yield curve where all this damage has taken place is definitely, in our view, caught our attention, and it's how we're constructing portfolios um, in that way. Another thing to point out about short rates um, is uh, I saw a chart recently with Fed funds and the front end expectations. This is the first time in a long time that those front end rates between four and a half and five are sitting dead smack on top of the earnings yield of the S&P 500. That's a problem. So when you have a market where you can park your money risk-free or cobble together a portfolio in the fives, why would you own stocks? So I think what the what has this done is draw a bead on where the vulnerable parts of the market are, which would be equity stick, are sticking out right now um, versus bonds. No, I, I've seen a few of those charts floating around, and we're actually public. We're, we're working on a document talking about that, trying to compare the tips yield, the ten-year tips yield, which is that one and a half number that you talked about, versus the earnings yield instead of just the five, 
these stocks are are these longer duration assets and people don't expect the five to stay there that long. But it's a, it's a great point. I mean, you'd have to think about it. If you can get five basically risk free. That's a lot more competition for stocks um, than you did than you had the last few years for sure. Uh, so it's a very a very interesting commentary. Um, in, in terms of before we're going to have to take a break in a second, but just to wrap up the first part of our, our conversation, um, any other big comments about the Fed inflation? How you think about just where rates are before we're going to turn into specific parts of the fixed income market in the second half of our discussion? No, I think it's. Uh, I, I made a point a few moments ago, which is re- reading where the herd is is the is a is a portfolio manager's best tool because that's how we position a portfolios and lean against it if we feel like it's compelling enough. But um, so whereas last year it was easy to lean against the overaggression and you position portfolios accordingly, well, that's all come those risk premiums and yields and everything came in as the herd moved. And so there was an inflection point late January. The herd was all in. It was all in on rates. It was all in on risk assets. And you see that in what, you know, whatever the move happened from October to the end of the year, it went into hyperdrive in January and made the market in a overly vulnerable spot. And whether, no matter how you connect the dots with level, the types of debt or equities, the market was vulnerable. Well, now it's that point where you should be risk reduction leaning against that and waiting for, uh, as the market grips with this, um, this concept of being um, um, higher for longer, or what have you, or no landing, um, will create the next opportunity. So uh, that's what we're focusing on right now. One of the, the taglines we're talking a lot about is there's finally income back in fixed income after you know you had a decade with no income in the fixed income market. But there's also more challenges as as you know the sort of big moving yields create a lot more volatility. Volatility is another big theme of this year. How does that move? Uh, and just what we were seeing in the last even 90 days, up and down in yields. Um, think about how you're suggesting or, or think about different mandates that, that you guys are running. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, great question, Jeremy. The, uh, you know, the volatility has been gut-wrenching at a minimum, and it's been this pendulum that has swung between of what to price in, whether it was um, part of last year was um, – yeah, a runaway inflation and, and, and a Fed behind the behind the ball to to deal with it. And now, and then starting in October, that pendulum ran equally as hard the other way, pricing in an almost not just optimism but a near certainty of of where they think things would end up with this battle with inflation versus the Fed. And um, I'll tell you one thing: the one one thing I would say is a flexibility is the key here for success in the bond market. You need an opportunistic um, mandate or a flexibility to respond because is what the market sh- uh, has shown uh, vis-a-vis a buy and hold strategy. Flexibility is king. That's your best antidote or recipe for success is, is because the market is going to give you turbulence, is going to give you air pockets of value and potentially significant value. And the you need that flexible mandate to rotate into those as they give them to you for your best chance of outperformance and strong returns. You know, this is, um, the bond world has been um, significantly affected for the last 14 years from alternative monetary policy. We've had uh, um, quantitative easing distorts things. It suppresses volatility. And with that shown exit stage left, um, we now have more of a normal world, a normal world with a lot of debt and um, without the suppression, it should be normalized volatility, if not elevated volatility. And so um, a buy and hold strategy, which worked great after the great financial crisis for a decade, um, not so much now. And so flexibility is key. And so um, we use that mindset across all of our products, um, core, core plus un- uh, unconstrained, long duration. But I would say if you uh, a, a specific strategy that's built for alternate flexibility, it's the unconstrained. Uh, it's because really the watchword there is 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 uh, opportunistic, uh, and to go to where value is is presented to you. Well, that sets out the natural question: is where does value present you today? What is the most? What, what are things that you'd say where you find the most attractive? Uh, great question. You know, there there is there's a lot. Uh, this is a lot tougher than what it was back in um, July. August, September of last year, because you had uh, the, I, w- I like to call um, 
refer to this to clients as I call it the double accordion effect because you had two accordions flex out at the same time last year. One being risk-free rates and treasuries, which was the biggest and most significant. It was, most of the repricing was risk-free rates. The second accordion was risky rates. Uh, on top of that, uh, spreads, uh, mortgage-backed securities, high-yield, uh, investment-grade securities, all blew out the same, uh, and it's not, not to the same extent as, as the first accordion, but you add it to the Add the two together, that's what created the very highly unique opportunities in 2022. So uh, it was easy to lean against that and, and, um, and uh, take duration up, increased exposure to high yield, to investment grade, into the mortgage-backed market, into that extreme weakness, which is creating multi-standard deviation events in, in some of those sectors. And um, to be able to, to, to position to, to a, a portfolio with uh, very strong prospective returns. However, a lot of that pent-up alpha has been taken away from us. The move from October to where we are today in January and early February, a lot of those risk premiums are gone. High yield was as wide as 582, 583 uh, as a spread, uh, which is very attractive by any, by any historical measure. Um, can't, has raced in 150 basis points. Investment-grade credit has raced in from 155 down to uh, the mid one teens, uh, the mortgage back markets about 40 to 50 tighter as well. So that was that near certainty of, Oh, the fed's going to stop working against this and start easing at some point that is now infiltrated the market. Um, there is, I would say from a valuation perspective is the market is high yield investment grade credit, mildly attractive. Um, but not as nowhere close to where we were in October of last year. So, uh, um, an overweight, uh, having exposure there is is um, coupled with much higher treasury rates gives you a very high prospective return. You get up a portfolio, uh, a safe, reasonable portfolio with an all-in yield of five to six percent is very attainable. Um, and on a prospective basis, just sitting and compounding there is not not a bad thing uh, in a multi-sector portfolio. Um, but I, as the last two weeks has shown us, is the market has gripped with this change of narrative from the near certainty of what they think the Fed will do, which is <laughs> when the market's pricing in the near certainty, you can, one thing is it's highly likely to be wrong. So um, now it's, grap- it's grappling with this no landing and potentially um, uh, staying here in the vexing issue of unemployment uh, or the labor market um, has created this change in narrative in the market. And that angst has led to uh, a two-year note that is 70 basis points higher in just a week and a half. Uh, and equities mark, equity market is not handling this well, which is having a spillover into credit and the appetite for taking credit. This has been a momentum move uh, in January and February, and that has been arrested in its tracks. And so what does that mean to managing portfolios? Having the flexibility to sit back and wait and um, lean against a, a momentum trade as we, we were able to do in, in, in January and lean against that and reduce risk and sit and wait until that narrative gets to an extreme point the other way. And um, that volatility will create opportunities. Um, I feel strongly about that as, as the year goes on. It is interesting how fast things moved this year, uh, and you can see maybe fast in, 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 the, in the opposite ways. Um, in terms of that in high yield versus investment grade, uh, is there one, if you were to say, between what's more attractive in terms of their spread versus history or where you are in recession? I, you know, I've been saying you're getting to eights, you know, and depending on what index you're looking at, you can be mid eights or, or low eights. Um, is there a segment of the high yield market now you can say, hey, we're going to, we might be going into a recession. Maybe we don't go to a recession, but is eight enough of a absolute yield in the high yield to protect from downfalls in a, in a, uh, in a recessionary scenario? I think so. Um, it's, it, it, it definitely, um, there is a, uh, a couple of things here. What, what, what is, what is baked in right now or what is well known to be the defaults or expected defaults? There's a handful of names out there and it's, it's probably about uh, literally a handful that, um, are already in a distressed situation and the market's looking for, um, there's a couple Wall Street strategists are looking for 5% defaults. There's S&P who's looking for three high threes. Um, so between three and five is an expected level, but a lot of that is priced in. And so if you 
Um, if you have, um, I would say what's baked in is if you, if it doesn't get worse in regard to Fed, Fed aggression, if you have it, if they're able to stop soon, um, and the market can take a breather, I think that would be okay for, uh, uh, corporate balance sheets or, uh, I would say access to capital. Um, if here's the caveat, if that doesn't happen and they have to go even higher, as was interjected this week with Bullard and, and Messer, it could be, uh, maybe even open to higher rates. If we, if there's more to go here, that just adds more stress to speculative grade companies. And then that default rate looks more at the higher end of the range. So it won't be three to four, it may be five to six. But I think, uh, what's built into eight is, is, um, uh, that is a reasonable enough spread according to history. You know, the one, uh, one, uh, thing you can hang your hat on is the quality of the high yield market is higher than what it was. What do you mean by that, Todd? Well, the, the percentage of double Bs, the highest rung of that, um, historically 10 years ago, I would say it was about 45%. It's up to 50. And, um, where does that come from is that the, the amount that's triple C and below, um, was as high as 20. It's down to about 10. So in general, the market's in better shape than what it was before. And, uh, that leads to better access to capital. Um, and, um, and, and just a better quality market in general to support, uh, distress. Now, is there places of that high yield market you, you really want to avoid? Um, you, you mentioned the overall high yield market is getting up in quality, but are there segments there that may have a more difficult time? Uh, you talk about being flexible. Where, where do we want to be flexible in the high yield market? Well, if, to the extent it, the security selection is key, I, the one thing, there's a theme here as I answer this question that spills over to the equity market too. Anything that was probably a financing or a business model or something that, um, that was a, a benefactor, excessive benefactor of quantitative easing and zero interest rates and a pandemic, um, you probably want to lean against it. So there's a, a lot of the stocks, um, they call them the meme stocks or whatever, the, the, these cult stocks that are, uh, were disproportionately hurt really bad in the equity market. Well, they were, they were viewed as being the new thing, um, because of, of, of the, the pandemic and, and, and alternative monetary policy. Well, those balance sheets, some of those companies have negative EBITDA. It's companies like that, that whole genre of negative EBITDA businesses that are all on the, the hope of the future in long-tailed growth. Those are the ones that cannot handle rates where they are because they're, uh, as, 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 as in financial analysts, we're discounting long dated cash flows and higher rates don't, are not a friend to that. And so those, some of those businesses in the, in the high yield market that are, are built that way, um, that are more, um, uh, newer, newer companies in, 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 into Wall Street, those are the ones that are probably the most vulnerable. So that, that recommendation applies to whether you're managing equities or managing high yield credit. It's the negative EBITDA businesses that will be struggled. There's a lot of them in the, in the convert market. That's not an area we, we participate in, but a lot of those companies, um, they use that spigot to finance themselves. And, uh, it's the kind of the go between, between in, uh, equity and fixed income. And so there's a lot of them parked in there. And they are those businesses that are predicated on, uh, the, uh, a business working in the future. And I think those will be where a lot of the, the pain will be in the, in the years ahead. Sort of the cheap financing made it easy to be unprofitable, but sort of unprofitable tech, this is another headwind for the unprofitable tech segment. Are there, people have talked about the, how much of the refinancing risk there is in the short run. Um, and they, there doesn't seem to be a, a huge amount of the overall high yield market that needs to refinance, call it like this year and next year. Is that an accurate de- depiction in your view, or is, is there more refinancers? Is it just very company-specific that people should be thinking about that type of risk? Uh, I, 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 I've seen some of that, uh, the, the data on the maturity, and it is fairly manageable. And um, a lot of these companies have, um, you know, the high-yield market really has to be bifurcated into the two areas now. It's really the loan market and the, uh, the high-yield market. So um, it's the loan market has to be watched, um, uh, but um, overall, the maturity spectrum going forward is is manageable, and uh, the market should be able to accommodate it. But um, if you, if again, if we have higher rates going even further, it's going to create more pressure on the access to capital issue uh, going into 2024. Though, uh, if we just spend a few minutes, you know, one of the things that 
when you look at the spread for mortgages over the tenure, uh, and I, I don't know how so that's exactly the right spread people should be looking for their their, their mortgage rate versus the tenure, but it seems like mortgage rates have a higher relative spread versus the government bonds, like the standard tenure bond versus history. Um, do you have any comment on that? Is there a reason why the spread for mortgages is higher now? Is it just the volatility in the market or any other things that's unique about what's happening for people trying to get a mortgage today? Uh, that's an interesting dynamic. It is, um, I think a lot of the, um, there's been a lot of volatility in that whole mortgage or structured product space. Um, I believe one of the months last year had the worst excess return on record. So a lot of that was um, you have a curve flattening, which is not good for mortgage product. Um, they do better with a curve steepening. You had one of the biggest buyers and owner was the government. And so when the government stopped their program of being the buyer of last resort, that, that meant you had to have a substitute come in and take that. But um, that is, um, uh, it's been a, a, a tough ride, and um, it is. It, it, it's, um, uh, it, it's, it, it, it's lent to some interesting value here. A big chunk of the market is, I believe I heard a statistic today, 80% of it's uh, fours and below. And so it's, uh, what that means is it's, it's, there's a lot of mortgages that are uh, at the lower coupon level or discounted, uh, discounted dollar securities. And so um, it is, um, it's an intriguing market sifting through the wreckage and at least getting somewhere close to neutral. There is even dislocations in some of the, um, away from the agency re uh, residential, there's some unique value because of, there was so much risk off um, last year in general, that um, um, a, 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 the market uh, uh, had so much of a repricing that um, there is unique uh, areas as well uh, in some of the ancillary markets, such as um, jumbo mortgages or non-qualifying uh, uh, non mortgages. So still very high quality. There's a lot to value to be had uh, still in the mortgage market, uh, as we, uh, at the, to, 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 to your point. Uh, looking at these spreads versus treasuries that are, we haven't had these in a while. But um, again, un not unlike, uh, very similar to high, uh, high yield investment grade, um, we're well off the, the, the levels we had in, 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 in October, but there's still some value to be had for a buy and hold portfolio for sure. We get the, the question coming back to like our big picture question on how we started the first half of, you know, you talked about the real rates at one and a half percent. We get asked, is it time to go overweight duration in portfolios? Uh, I just want to hear some of the things you say of where you think the 10 year might cap out this cycle. Like what, is there a place there, is there a level you say it's very, very attractive on the 10 year uh, that you'd be, you know, all in max duration uh, or, is, or what also would be catalyst for, the tenure to keep going higher besides this, you know, recent idea that, Hey, the economy's going to do better, not no recession. We're going to, we're going to navigate just fine. What are the other catalysts for the tenure to keep creeping higher? Um, you know, there, it's just, uh, like you said, the main issue affecting all rates, the first and foremost is this narrative of everyone's hoping for and expecting the slowdown. And, but what if it doesn't happen? What if, uh, what and if so, if the market grips to this narrative of uh, there's we're going to like a speed bump go over this repricing of rates of, of rates and have demand uh, continue unabated and um, it's going to they're going to be at this for a long time. They may stop, but that means there's not going to be any easing anytime soon. They're just going to stay at this quote unquote plateau for some time. Um, that will will create consternation in the market. The market's craving for looking at the other side of this when there'll be an ultimate easing. If it doesn't happen, that's going to be an issue. The China reopening, that is another thing on people's minds of um, what does that mean for demand? I hear a lot of people talking about what does that mean for global uh, petroleum demand or uh, what have you. A lot of people have used that as a interesting story um, as, as part of this, as the next factor. I heard one this week, this is interesting, is um, there's this Wall Street strategist, well-regarded, who came out with a piece and he had a pot uh, the, uh, the uh, client call earlier today to go through it, which I wasn't able to attend, but his thesis is why hasn't the economy responded to the tightening of financial conditions? And 
his thesis that he's working on is, it's because so much of the uh, of securities and losses associated with it are parked on Fed balance sheets. So they're not able to be monetized by um, uh, institutions. So basically you're shielding the market from losses and therefore what you see as what should be a tightening of financial conditions is being hidden. And that's an interesting concept because people are wondering why are we not seeing the damage to demand? Why is unemployment not going up? Why is non-farm payrolls 500,000 last month? Why, where is the elusive demand destruction? It's supposed to be out there according to academic, but it's not. And so all that to say, we don't know what the next six months look like, but if the narrative builds of that elusive slowdown doesn't happen, you're going to see um, the, the market run ahead with rates, my guess is. So you could get uh, over four again on the 10-year. Sure, it's very possible. But um, we look at a, a real rates of interest at, you know, right now at one and a half on, on the 10-year. Um, it's, it's, it, it's, tr- it's okay here. And it'd be, I would say we'd be length- we're neutral duration, but we'd be lengthening duration if we were to get uh, to those levels uh, uh, on, on any type of sell-off. No, it's, it's interesting. Everybody refinanced their mortgage. It's all below. Now everybody's got a job and they're just collecting these higher income levels that they they didn't have before. So, you know, higher rates have been bullish. <laughs> it's an interesting, interesting take. Todd, any final things? We have 30 seconds, places where people could find your work or where they can learn more about Reams Asset Management. Uh, we're as you said at the beginning, we are a wholly owned subsidiary of Raymond James Investment Management. That's the uh, boutique uh, holding company that owns their asset management arms. But uh, through them, we have our products are available in um, in 40 Act mutual fund type products, and um, it can be accessible through uh, through that avenue. Very good. This was a fun conversation. Thank you for joining us for this present day weekend holiday. We've been talking with Todd Thompson of Reams Asset Management. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our Sound engineer Chris Tooks for managing the soundboard. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.